From Hype Beast and Hype Radio, I am Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. When it comes to entrepreneurs, there is one type that I always get really jealous of. Now, as you might know, a large part of my business comes from making clothes and making shoes. Both very large, cumbersome, and complicated things. They're big, bulky, they come in a lot of sizes, they come in a lot of colors, and overall, the logistics of them are just a big pain in the ass, trust me. So I always get really jealous when someone creates a successful brand that is making A, something really small, and B, when it basically consists of just one thing. And that one thing can change and adjust over time, but essentially, it is just one thing. My advice to someone out there trying to figure out what to make with their brand, do that. Make it small, keep it simple. But I do wanna emphasize, that does not make it easy. No, no, in fact, it probably makes it much harder and much more challenging because now you have to embed all these different stories and concepts into this tiny little object and you have to adapt and change constantly without changing its actual form. This is way easier said than done. Enter this week's guest. When a person like this holds such a positive and thoughtful mindset, it's easy to think he or she is meant for success. I mean, someone with a worldly perspective deserves the recognition, right? But what shouldn't be overlooked is the amount of time effort and hard work that was actually put in to bring his creation into a position where it is today. Critics will scoff that, oh, it's just this, or it's only this tiny little thing. But Rastaklat has grown to become an extremely successful brand all across the globe. And today, the founder sits down with us to break down his humble beginnings in Kenya, to creating Rastaklat, to collaborating with some of the biggest brands, including a pretty big sporting event in 2020, and how he's handling his recent legal battles with Off-White. Everyone, welcome to the business of hype, Daniel Cassidi. My name is Daniel Cassidi. I'm founder of Rastaclot. Uh, Rastaclot's a brand that's based on spreading positivity, doing good for yourself and others, and, and really we have a product that's a vehicle of that, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been doing that for about eight years. Cool. So it's an eight-year-old brand, Rastaklat, and a lot of people might know the the brand as like an accessories-based brand, right? Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And the thing that, in case you don't know, can you, like for those who don't know, can you describe the product physically? Yeah, the product is is a bracelet, mm-hmm. and the concept came from taking a pair of shoelaces from a sneaker and wearing it on your wrist. And so... Um, that was the initial product, and you know we, we definitely took that and, and ran with it mm-hmm. and wanted to build storytelling into the product. And um, so, yeah, we have a range of bracelets, about four or five silhouettes mm-hmm. that we, we constantly uh, reimagine um, materials and storytelling, and, and we built a brand mm-hmm. from that product. You said four to five silhouettes. How many styles and colors like total do you have in your range at any given time? Oh, man, we probably will create 400 to 500 SKUs a year. Okay. Yeah. That's that's a lot out of a bracelet. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been able to, we've been able to take one concept and and be quick to market and uh, storytell, mm-hmm. and that that go, that says a lot about storytelling and what we're about. Yeah. Because it isn't about creating new 
jewelry line every single season. It's mm-hmm. about it's about telling stories. Yeah, yeah. What I really like about your brand is first, it's it's obviously a successful brand that you have. You know, you support yourself. You have a whole staff. And it's it's globally available, right? So like you've taken over the planet with your product. Um, but what I really like about it is exactly what you just said. It's it's one product, and you dive deep on that one thing. I think a lot of people have, um, a lot of creatives especially have the sort of like the need or desire to sometimes say like I have an accessories line, so I want to have like every season. 25 different styles and all these different finishes and then start all over and you know like do it all over again but you just hone in on this one thing and like really kill it was that the the intention from the very beginning is that or is that the way your brain is wired um i think it's a little bit of of both you know i feel simplicity is is key right and also if you think about um the generation that we're in the amount of newness they need to have all the time is is really important you know and the attention span is low so you had to create a product, and we knew we needed to create a product that we can continue to. Cre- we had to create very quickly, get speed to market, um, but something that's stylish enough that they're going to want to wear every single day. But I think simplicity for me is just as a human being um, is really important, and it goes in every aspect of my life. So um, maybe it's not by accident that that's how the brand is uh, sort of how it's set up. So where is the brand today? Can you talk a little bit about like distribution, where you're selling, like where people can get it? Like, you know, how many, how many customers or followers you have? Like, how much revenue do you do? Can you talk about how big the brand is now? Yeah, the, the brand is global. Um, that was always the intention. Um, you know, our, our message is seek the positive, just as, uh, you know, Apple has think different or whatever the case may be. Ours is seek the positive. And so that message resonates all around the world. So um, we're in over 45 countries, um, U.S. being our largest market, you know, Asia and Southeast Asia being the second largest market and mm-hmm. emerging markets in um, Central and South America as well. Um, so it's uh, it's global. Um, and here in the U.S., I mean, obviously, you can get it on rostaclot.com. Um, you know, Zoomies has been a pretty big customer of ours for, for a while. Finish Line, um, Fanatics, NBA stores, NBA arenas. Um, so it also touches, you know, skate, retailers, sneaker retailers, um, sport retailers, and uh, just as of late, you know, getting into more of the women's side of things. So mm-hmm. you can find it in over, you know, 3,000 stores here in the U.S. as well. So we have a pretty good mix of e-commerce and retail business that um, all over the world. Okay. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's pretty well, well received. And, you know, we have the following on Instagram, at least on ours, uh, over 300,000 followers there. Um, but it's really hard to tell how many followers they are because you know we have distributors all around the world that have a lot of followers, and mm-hmm. I don't know what that aggregates to. But yeah, um, but yeah, it's quite a quite a big pool of people. How big is your whole team? Our team in Long Beach, California, is about thirty five people. Wow. Um, so yeah, uh, and you know if you really think about how many people work with us all around the world, it's over a hundred mm-hmm. distributors, sales reps, marketing teams, yeah. so on and so forth. I think it's probably surprising to a lot of um, young entrepreneurs that like if you have a brand that's as quote unquote simple as you said, as just you know a bracelet, an accessory with a meaning behind it, that you need a staff of like thirty five people around that. Can you briefly break down like what roles all these diff- different people play? Yeah, and your um, own your own role too now. Yeah, I mean, my role has evolved into more of the visionary, you know, and um, you know that's a that's an interesting word. People say it all the time, but you know, um, my job is to look and see how do we bring value to the world in ten years, 
and where do we need to sit as, as a brand and uh, to be meaningful and then lead the teams and lead the ship towards that direction. Okay. And that's what I do every single day mm-hmm. um, through partnerships, you know, through learning, through a lot of different things. Um, but other, other than that, there's a lot of different roles. We have um, Eileen Chan, who's our president um, and my partner. And uh, she basically runs a lot of the operations okay. um, and makes sure that the entire company functions. And Did you? Is she a co-founder? She's not a co-founder, but she's a co-owner. She, co-owner, yes. yeah. yeah. But you founded it. Yes. So maybe first I want to I want to start a little bit there where like you're the founder, you conceived of it, you are the pure entrepreneur at a certain point and how many how many years you said you're 8 years in how many years was it since Eileen has been president Eileen's been president officially about 2 years in but okay. she was consul- she was helping she me was doing the work like, she was doing a lot of things right. even before that but then we officially as we kind of continue to gain success we we made things more and more official yeah um, but she's been part of the picture pretty close from the beginning yeah i think yeah. it takes a lot of um, it takes a lot of insight and sort of like just perspective for a founder to be like, I'm not going to be president. Was that a was that a difficult decision for you to make? Like, I'm going to pass the reins to somebody else to run the ship. Yeah, I mean, I'm my my title is still founder and CEO, um, but I've realized shedding the ego is the best thing that you can do. It releases so much of the tension and stress on you. And you know, when I brought her on as a partner, it literally felt like half of the weight just got lifted off of me. Yeah, yeah. You know, because you know you had someone looking after that baby, mm-hmm. you know, just as much as you cared, someone else cared just as much. And so once I kind of felt that feeling, I knew that building a team and the people behind the organization are gonna be are gonna be the reason why we succeed. Mm-hmm. And so every single day shedding the ego and and, and yeah. saying I don't know how to do that and bringing the right people in and, and getting out of the way and it's it's a learning pro- it's a personal yeah. journey that yeah. you go on cuz there's a lot uh, of like control factors as a founder like you want to own everything and control everything and you also sort of assume that like nobody else could do it as good as you can do it or nobody else could possibly care as much as you could right that's the ego talking though right yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. then you realize like oh shit this feels kind of good when someone else is like loving this as much as you are. Yeah, and if people understand why they work for your organization and how it benefits them and how they become fulfilled from it, mm-hmm. sometimes they even become more passionate than even you might be. Mm-hmm. You know, about a particular, especially about a particular area, area. of business. Yeah. yeah, there's people at Rosclaw where I'm like, man, mm. the passion in this person is off the charts. You yeah. know, like I'm not that passionate about that one thing. Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's so refreshing coming in. That's why the people that work at Rosclaw are truly my inspiration. I come in every day and they inspire me. So I think it's like it's a symbiotic relationship yeah, yeah. that we've built in our culture. So yeah, how's the rest of the team layout? So you have the president and how's everyone else? Yeah, you have um, obviously accounting, mm-hmm. um, okay. HR. Accounting kids. Yeah. Real important. That's smart that you have an accounting department. Yeah, you got to, man. <laughs> <laughs> you got to collect. You know, There's a lot that goes into it. You know, And I think those are, that's one craft that I don't think is going to get you know, you know, it's not. You're gonna have to have people there. Yeah, you that know, count even, the money. Even collecting, in and going out. Even collecting takes a little bit of you know uh, emotional intelligence and and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So it's it's hard to to just have a machine do it. But um, accounting, HR, we have a sales team, mm-hmm. a domestic sales team, international sales team. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a marketing team, and marketing nowadays is is unorthodox because you have digital, yeah, you have e-commerce, you have retail marketing, mm-hmm. um, you have product. Product development, yeah. production, 
mm-hmm. um, product design, okay, creative directors, uh-huh. graphic designers, you know, and then you have the warehouse, right. logistics fulfillment, center, fulfillment, yeah. customer service. Um, so yeah, a lot of people don't think about these things, you know, like yeah. oh yeah, like what if someone orders something off the website and they don't like it? Who's going to be fielding that person? Like mm-hmm. these are very important. Everything can like take the ship down. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 quite the operation, and I think that's the biggest surprise as an entrepreneur that I've had in my journey is when you're a founder and you're just like you're very relentless and passionate. It's mm-hmm. just you, and your drive drives the business to to proof of concept. Mm-hmm. I always talk about that, like my inner drive drove this to proof of concept, mm-hmm. but getting it from proof of concept to where it is now took took a village, and that's what I never realized when I started a business is that all the people that would come along. And how much leadership was so important to be able to accomplish bigger things. Right. And so those are the things that I ended up learning on the fly. (laughs) You'd think a simple idea would only require a simple operation. But in fact, those ideas need more attention to detail in order to continuously bring something new to the table. And more often than not, your simple idea needs the attention from a wide range of people that deal with areas of the company beyond what your brand is probably offering. So much more goes into starting a brand than having just the idea. As Daniel mentioned, the onus is on you, the founder, to conceptualize the idea and create a proof of concept. But then it's up to a team to make that idea actually come to life. That team is key for allowing you as the founder to then focus on priorities, the vision, and what makes your company unique. No one person can handle every single aspect. Think about every single touch point that a potential consumer will have, from an ad, to an Instagram comment, to getting their package, to purchasing the product from a separate retailer, and way more. I'm talking even down to how the box was packed when it was put on the UPS truck. Each touch point needs to be overseen and managed by someone you trust. These things just don't happen by themselves. And it's great vision for Daniel to see the need for his team. And great humility to check his ego for it too. Remember, you're only blocking yourself if you don't see the need to bring in the right people. If the product and pushing its innovation is what drives you, then give yourself the needed time to focus on that. And conversely, if it's the financials that drives you, then handle the books and the spreadsheets and bring in someone with a creative vision. Just remember, no one man should have all that power. So let's go back to the beginning because I want to know how you started this. Um, where did you grow up? Where were you born? In, Ka- in Cali? I was born in Kenya. So I was born <laughs> okay, in... Okay, uh, not Cali. Yeah, Kenya. Kenya. <laughs> Kenya, Africa. All right. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So I was born in Kenya. Um, I lived in Kenya till I was six years old. My parents were engineers there and uh-huh. um, they wanted us to get a better education. So um, they decided to come to America. Okay. Right. And so um, when I was six years old, we came to America and... I just remember the flight in and looking down on the four or five or whatever freeway it was yeah. and just b- looking at it like I've never seen anything like this before. And that's what I knew I was officially in a different world. You was, know what what's, I'm saying? What, what is it like if you fly into Kenya? I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's a Serengeti. It's just like it's open. You know, there's no cars. <laughs> it's like just, uh-huh. you know, 
uh, wildlife and just green and whatever the case may be. So Even the airport, like, is you just flying into like... Yeah, it's like there's an airport and then everything around it is just very kind of lush and green. Wow. Dope. So to see like houses and pools and yeah, cars, yeah. it was just like, okay, well, this you're in a different place now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, that was my upbringing. We, we moved here. Um, to, we moved to California and uh, I could have moved anywhere, but we, we ended up being in Orange County, California. Mm-hmm. So that... Uh, that was interesting, and so as as I was growing up, you know, in Orange County, skate culture yeah. was pretty big. Yep. You know, so as I was getting into high school, is those awkward moments like, what am I going to do? How am I going to fit in? And everyone was skateboarding. I was like, oh, I'll try this out. Yeah. And my brother skateboarded, and he was actually really good. And I was a little brother that just copied everything that he mm-hmm. did. Um, but I really loved it. I took like uh, I don't know what it was, but I, I was very passionate about it, and I, I wanted to become a professional skateboarder. Oh, you got good. I got good. Okay. Yeah. So, like, did you get to the point where you got sponsored? Yeah. So I you oh know, shit. <laughs> at fifteen, I started skateboarding. By seventeen, I was getting um, sponsors. Okay. So board shops, and I had uh-huh. a shoe company that sponsored me. It was Action Footwear. I don't know if you guys remember that company. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I got a shoe sponsor, and that's actually what sparked the Rastaclot idea. Okay. You know, I was waiting one day to go skateboarding. And I put on my brand new, you know, shoes. Put a new, you know, skate setup on. And the skate shoes used to come with these extra laces. Mm-hmm. You know, because skaters destroy their laces. You destroy your laces. Yeah. And so I used to just throw them in the corner of my room. But that day, I decided to just take one. And I, I was always creative. I was, used to always break things down, put them back together. And I decided to make a bracelet out of it. And I just wore it to school. And little do I know. Um, that day, ten of my friends would be like, "Hey, Daniel, that's a cool bracelet. Can you can I get one to match my sneakers or my hat or my uh-huh. whatever?" And I was like, "Man, I got a ton of laces at the house. Right? Like, you got a couple bucks? Let's make this happen, right?" Mm-hmm. And so that's really how it started. And you know, I, I went home that night and I made these bracelets from ten of my friends. And I go back to school the next day and give it to them. And everyone came back to me at the end of the day with some like cool story of like inspiration or newfound confidence somebody noticed them or they felt fly and i was like man this is like not only cool that i made a couple bucks but i made someone feel good yeah you know and that's why our mission statement is spreading positive vibrations one risk at a time yeah and that's really so interestingly enough for us the why and the what was born in the same day Mm -hmm. or within two days 24 hours yeah and so i think a lot of I think a lot of um, brands have a hard time finding those uh-huh. two yeah, over yeah. time. And, and oh yeah, there's like consultants that sit there and like help brands write their whys and their mission statements, right? right. But yours was born in school, like yeah. in the day, and it was just so organic. You yeah. Know? So I, I recognized that and sort of um, wanted to create that into a business. And I didn't. It didn't happen overnight, right? So I, I did it in high school, and I kind of had this micro business. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I didn't have the money to really start a real business. I didn't know how to source. I didn't know how to do all the things that it takes to run an operation. Um, so I went to school at Fitum, mm-hmm. and I learned the craft. Um, I worked for licensees of Levi's. I was designing for Levi's and um, Reebok, and I did stuff for Speedo. So I was just learning it, you know? All the while still making some bracelets for friends, or you sort of put it well, on I pause? I kind of put it on pause. I did okay. that from like 18 to like 20, like two years of doing this micro business and realizing like, hey, I really need to get some formal training because yeah. um, I didn't have any mentors, you right, know? Right. So it was just go to school. That's what my parents told me, go to school. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did that, and then I got industry knowledge, just working in the industry right. while I was going to school, and, and that was really, really impactful. So mm-hmm. um, so yeah, um, I did that for about five years, and I was working for a licensee of Levi's, and I was designing for Levi's, and you know, I got a, a small small tax return check, and I was like, you know what? This is the opportunity to take that micro business and put 150 into it, 150% into it, and um, probably one of the best decisions I ever made. So, yeah. yeah. How much did you put into it to start Rastaclot? $4,000. Wow. 
Yeah, that's nothing. Four thousand dollars. But so, what did you what did you buy? Like, what was what did that four thousand go to? I mean, like mad laces. Mad, no, well, basically, I, or I, you wanted to because here's the thing. I think most people think that like your brand is buying laces from like Foot Locker and making it, but no, you're engineering them from the ground up. Exactly. So, so is that what you did with the first 4K? 4K, I, I found a, a factory. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically took a trip to Asia by myself, wow. you know, and started like putting this thing together, uh-huh. you know, packaging, putting the bracelet together, you know, development of that. You're gonna, then, where you're going to make your own shoelace? Like, no, not my own shoelace. Like basically took a Nike SB lace, yeah. the oval lace. Yeah, the and, puffy lace. Yeah, yeah, I found factories that can make the, the puffy lace. Mm-hmm. And then we found ways to to fashion different designs in them and things of that nature. Yeah. And so I was creating tech packs and, and making sure that everything was legit, right. understanding like what's the density of the lace, getting into like the detail of like what's the hand feel. Uh-huh. You know, some laces had too much nylon in them and they'd pill, you know. So there was a lot of detail that went into yeah. creating the product and also making it, I understood at retail too, that the buyers wanted to buy one size fits all, right? Okay. So, so it had to be adjustable. It had to be adjustable. So how am I going to make this product look like a shoelace, mm-hmm. be adjustable, have right. the quality where a kid that loves sneakers and cares about the detail of the quality mm-hmm. is going to buy it and feel like they got great value from it. And so, yeah, th- that was a process, that development process. And so going to school and actually working in the industry and, and, and doing it for apparel yeah. gave me a level of understanding that I was able to translate that into such a simple product Word. that people see, oh, this is a bracelet, but yeah. they don't understand the level of detail that so, goes into it. So your product is not an actual shoelace. It looks very much like a shoelace, but it, it can't and won't function like a shoelace, correct? Yeah, if you took it apart, um, yeah. you know, it's, 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 it's bar tack and it's sewed. Oh, so, okay, okay. But if you, if, when you, if you were to go to the factory, uh-huh. it's, a, it's a woman, and I actually have raced them before, and they kick my ass every time. Uh-huh. But they, it's one lace, and they'll, they'll fashion it, and then they'll sew it, and they'll, they'll finish it with uh-huh. the hardware. Um, so it is, it is a shoelace. Okay, uh, but you couldn't take it apart and put it on your shoes. Yeah, yeah, you know, in a sense. But know? the first ones that you made in school were you hand yeah, braiding, hand braiding. Me and a couple of my friends probably hand braided over ten thousand bracelets. You, you yourself, like yeah. you and some friends, yeah. like not a factory, not a factory. Hand braided ten thousand of them. Yeah, at least. And selling back then for like how much? I was selling for like five bucks. <laughs> Yeah. And back then, where were you getting the shoelaces from? The skate shop and sales rafts and all that. <laughs> Your sponsorship as a skater? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you found any way you could do it. But they must have just been like generic color, like black, white laces. The so most you remember part. the D3, the Osiris D3, yes. right? That shoe by itself, gave, we got a lot of laces from that shoe by itself because that, that shoe was so popular mm-hmm. that there was probably like 20 different colorways of that shoe. Yeah. And the shoe had... It was two-toned always, so it would come with the laces that came on the shoe and then the, the extra laces uh-huh. on the side. Yeah. So that shoe alone... In mad colors, yeah. In mad colors. And uh, at that point, we got a lot of bracelets from, from the extra Osiris. pair of D3 shoes. Shout out D3 Osiris. <laughs> Shout out D3, Dave Mahi Osiris. Daniel's rise with Rastaclot is not a result of capitalizing on a hot trend or lucky success. It's a culmination of learning the business, mastering his product firsthand, and developing the right infrastructure for his brand to function as a real, viable company. And not to mention, there wasn't a precedence for this, you know? It's not like there was an entire industry of bracelets made from sneaker parts. His fun little homegrown product, sold at school, is now a global phenomenon worn by millions 
Daniel put in the work. There's absolutely no question about it. When he found an opportunity to jump straight in the Rastaklat, he took his money and made that risk. He made the choice to get out of his comfort zone and learn everything he could about manufacturing, material selection, and more. If he was going to do it, he needed to do it right on his own terms. And he needed to stop making tens of thousands of them with his own two fingers. If you do everything right early on, there will be a time when a risky proposition is presented to you. And will you do what is needed to take that risk? This is a pivotal point in so many stories I've heard from past Business of Hype guests. It's literally a turning point for so many. It was when Sean Witherspoon went all in on his LA store. And it was when Nicole McLaughlin shut down those social media critics in her head. And so now, Daniel Cassidy is about to go all in on Rastaclot. Did you uh, did you ever consider, like when you wanted to take it to the next level beyond you handmaking, did you ever think, maybe I'll go to a sneaker company and like ask them? Or were you thinking, I'm going to make this myself? Yeah, I was I was like hell-bent on making it really? myself, you know? Wow, I would have like probably called up like a sneaker brand and been like, hey, let's, why don't we make this together? Yeah. But you yeah. didn't want to do that. I, I just never thought about it, you know? <laughs> I mean, you kind of... You, it's better that you didn't think about it because you'd be like partnered with them, you know? Maybe. And it's also like I, I, I loved sneakers and I've been a sneakerhead, but I didn't really have those contacts, you know? Mm-hmm. And... I think even the internet was still pretty young when I started, yeah. you know, and just having that access to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually went to a Dunk Exchange show, and that's when I started to realize that, you know, you know, sneaker culture and, and the sneakerheads loved this product. Yeah, and it was something that connected them to the culture mm-hmm. that was accessible. Yeah, you know, and when we talk about the brand being global, that's a pretty big piece of it mm-hmm. because. You know, in streetwear, generally everything's so expensive and it's so unattainable. Yeah. Um, but if you go to like, let's say you go to the Philippines or you go to Vietnam or you're in Thailand and these kids like want a piece of that culture and they mm-hmm. want to they feel like they, they belong. And so, you know, our brand gave them that opportunity. Yeah, because so, they're reading about it on the internet, but they mm-hmm. can't, they don't have a Supreme store. They don't yeah. have like a major retailer, you know, so. And they can't afford it. Yeah, even, yeah, exactly. You know? right. And so we, we sort of bridge that gap, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's, I guess when you talk about specifically in streetwear, that's really where we, where we live. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You were telling me a little bit about the other opportunities that are happening. Like you mentioned like the leagues, you mentioned fanatics, even mm-hmm. like the Olympics. Mm-hmm. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the Olympics is something that's, uh, it's been something that I've wanted to do since before I started the brand. You know, I knew um, I wanted to have a brand that was global and that, that inspired a lot of people around the world. So we got an opportunity to work with the Olympics. So in the 2020 Olympics, we'll be representing the Olympics with the accessories. The, um, which team or the Olympics in general? Well, just Team USA. Team USA. Yeah. That's amazing. So our bracelet will be, you know, one of the official braces for Team USA. And um, yeah, we're excited about that. I think if you think about the Olympics and what it represents, it represents pride in, in, in your country. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about what sports represent and, and how much dedication and commitment it takes to, to become great, um, we want to tell those stories and we also want to unite people. Yeah. You know, we want to unite a nation through yep. our brand. And so um, I think that's the interesting thing about our brand is as small as the product may be or as mm-hmm. simple as it may be, mm-hmm. like the power behind it is, yeah. is grand. Yeah. You know? I mean, the Olympics is notoriously known for like vetting their partners very deeply. Like everyone wants to be able to put the Olympic rings on their product, but they control it very tightly who their partners are. So the mm-hmm. fact that they blessed you guys 
with this, you know, collaborative opportunity is goals, man. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah we're excited about it. And it's, uh, I mean, eventually I want to do the entire, do the entire globe. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's like the 20, what's the next one is 20, uh, 28, 24, 2024, 2028. That's what we want to work towards representing I think the entire LA world. is coming soon. Yeah, 2028. 2028 is LA. 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 You've got to own that shit, so that's, man. That's, that's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the long-term flight, yeah. right? So, Recreate that flight coming in from Kenya. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful, man. And yeah. I'm, I'm excited and I'm blessed to be a part of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, in, you, you were alluding to this before, but like, you know, the product's very simple. And I think maybe like some of your um, critics might be like, oh, how is this a brand? Like, you know, it's, it's a shoelace tied into a bracelet. Like, this is not a brand. And um, it, it makes me think of, like, I don't know if you ever watched Shark Tank, mm-hmm. but, like, the dude, Mr. Wonderful, his line is always like, I can make this. I don't need you. I don't need to buy your company. I can go make this myself, right? And you would think that, like, the sports leagues and the Olympics and all these people that you collaborate with could also be like, yeah, what do I, I don't need you. I could make this on my own. I, I have a guy, I could go to China and make this, right? But you've built something deeper than just a lace tied into a bracelet. It's, they're not buying into that actually, right? No, because a brand isn't your product. A brand is how you make people feel, mm-hmm. right? A brand is how you bring people into a community. Um, so what we've created is, is is more powerful than mm-hmm. that it's um it's 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 almost it's hard to even explain you know i think when we people that buy our brand are buying into positivity they're buying into culture they're buying into being a part of a family mm-hmm. you know buying into being a part of a group of people that believe what they believe in yeah and so you can't recreate that right without yeah no matter how much money you have you can't buy into that you can't buy into that there the barrier of entry into that is years and years and years and mm-hmm. years of being consistent right. and having discipline and having conviction in what you're doing mm-hmm. and and continuously doing it it takes it's incredibly difficult yeah. to build a brand and did you learn that power and sense of community right from those first like high school orders absolutely is that like cuz you were saying like i remember you saying like when those few kids had it they would come back and be like, yo, this is like a magic thing. Like I got so much love and respect out of this. And what tripped me out is it went from 10 people the first day to 20 people the second day to 40 people the third day to 80 people. So it was it was doubling on itself every single day. So uh-huh. I understood that there was a power in spreading in it. it. Yeah. In spreading it. Yep. And so I, I saw that. I felt that and I saw it on a, on a micro level. And mm-hmm. so when I started the Rostoclaw brand, it was like, how do I recreate that? Yeah. And it was scary as shit because it's like, if you did it, if you failed, it would have been, it would have really sucked, you mm-hmm. know? But, um, you know, I, I thought about that for about half a second and I was like, no, let's go get it. Let's go do it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And so it, luckily that same energy continued to, it's, it happened again. Yeah. You know, I was able to duplicate it. I don't see Daniel stopping anytime soon. Whether he learned on the fly or gained hands-on experience at Fitum or other companies, his perspective into developing and growing a brand is dope. He understands the purpose of the product and how the brand creates that connection between the consumer and his products. The work required to build a brand is deeper than many think. You have to know what's out there, know what people are interested in, and what resonates with them. You have to be knowledgeable, and yet you have to trust your gut instincts. There's a reason why Rastaklat has been able to go international. And there's a reason why the Olympics are knocking on his door. 
It's not just about colorways or materials people might like. He's able to break down why people all over the world resonate with his product. He understands these mental intersections inside and out and is able to then apply that thinking directly into a physical product. That is no easy feat, people. Let's face it, everything that needs to be made has already been made. Sure, every few decades, someone invents Google Street View or autopilot driving. But for the most part, brands are reinterpretations of past things that already exist. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how we progress as humans. The wheel was invented 5,000 years ago, and now we have tires that don't ever get flat. It's progression of a singular form. As you think about your brand, consider some of the feedback you might get in your own Shark Tank meeting. Can you counter that no one else can go off and create your idea on their own? Can you clearly define how what you have is more than just a product, but an actual brand? Answer those questions for yourself, because one day, you might need to answer them for the world. You mentioned a lot of the successes you've had in the past eight years. In those eight years, has there ever been a point where you felt like it got so hard that you almost wanted to like check out? No. No. Not for me. Okay. I mean, I think um, there's been a lot of difficult moments. Yeah. But I think for us, for Rossiclap, there's so much fulfillment in what we do. Mm-hmm. Like, I come to work on Monday morning and I get a list of like all the reviews or responses from kids. And there might be a kid like, hey, I bought the breast cancer awareness bracelet and you know, my mom was in the hospital and helped us get through our, our mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a kid just like, hey, I'm really inspired by your company and it reminds me to be positive every single day. So I think for us, why we do what we do is, isn't for making money. It isn't for um, some sort of like recognition. It's like we're actually impacting people's lives so that recharges you every single day yeah you know no matter how shitty the day may be Mm -hmm. like when you read something like that you're like hell yeah yeah i'm glad that i'm doing this every single day and so um the fact that that's built in to the to the brand and to my experience every day i think kind of recharges me and it Mm -hmm. recharges everyone at rossiclot and so maybe that's the secret sauce for us yeah you know what is you mentioned having a shitty day like what causes shitty days when you have your own company <laughs> what, what is our what are stress I mean, factors i think stress factors is like when you know if you have to like let someone go like that's yes. like a, that's like a really that's that just you know because you you get to know people personally mm-hmm. and sometimes you have to make the business decision that is really tough you yeah know? and so those are those are bad days you know i think uh you know, you can you can lose an account. That's a bad day. Yeah. You know? Yep. Um taking an L like in You can take an L or yeah. someone tells you no. It's like that's a bad day. Yeah. You know, or you know, there's there's all sorts of things that can happen that can be bad, but it's just about how you respond to it and mm-hmm. how long you let you hang your hat on that specific right, right. thing. Yeah. You know? So you recently had a a bad day that <laughs> that went public. Mm-hmm. That that went kind of public and it was with it involved one of like the sort of like most um legendary luminescent like sort of designers right now and it's you know i we can speak about this i think we can speak a lot about it because it's a lot of it is publicly aired but i understand that this is still an ongoing legal matter so there's a lot of stuff that you might not be able to talk about but tell me from from your perspective um what happened with the with the off-white situation you know like like i said i mean our brand is is founded on 
the culture, sneaker mm-hmm. culture. And so since the very inception of the brand, that's been a big part of who we are. And as we go on, we respect everyone's trademarks and everyone's uh, intellectual property. Um, and so, you know, we had a bracelet that uh, that was sold and, and Off-White felt that it was infringing on their trademarks. Mm-hmm. Um, we disagree mm-hmm. and our legal teams also disagree as well. But, you know, they decided to file a lawsuit against us. Mm-hmm. And so we're in the middle of sorting all that out. Yeah. Um, I mean, as yeah. of as of this recording, this mm-hmm. just is like one week old. It's a week old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah a, a week ago. I woke up and it was on High Beast and High Snob and Complex and every single yeah you know um, publication. So so you weren't the one that like went public with the story. Somehow it just like, yeah. I found out from the news. You basically. found out from High Beast that yes. it was happening. Yes. <laughs> Holy shit! How does that make you feel when that happens? I mean, uh, it's it's a sense of. There's a sense of like, man, like this is uh this is an interesting time, right? Because I know within streetwear there's always been you know appropriation of, mm-hmm. of logos and colors and things of that nature, but there hasn't really been anything like that substantial for a number of years, you know? Yeah. And so it was just kind of like, man, like this is to a certain extent, it's a little bit of history too. Mm-hmm. And um so there was kind of taken back by that. And you know what I, do you mean a little bit of history? In a sense of like this is something that people are going to talk about. Oh right, right. You know, and um, you know, I know that there's been documentaries done on streetwear and all of that. And mm-hmm. I think like this is something that people may talk about in the future. And so um Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was a surreal moment. I didn't I didn't know that it would be picked up by all the publications. So yeah. you know that kind of gave it another level of yeah. You know, it added it added the, yeah, to it, right? You know, so yeah, I, you know, it was just like holy shit! Like this is it's it's mm-hmm. everywhere now. Yeah, yeah. And so um, and then yeah, there's also there's also the business aspect of it. You want to protect your your business. You want to protect everything that you've you've worked for. And so yeah, um, we've done a great job over the years of of getting trademarks and patents on all our products. Mm-hmm. And so we stand behind our products. We stand behind the research that we do before we ever release a product to respect everyone else's um, intellectual property. Mm-hmm. And so you know we stand behind that. And I think that's that's ultimately what we yeah. What we'll, I think the other thing that adds to this is that. Um, and you know it'd be awesome if Virgil was sitting here as well. But like, he prides himself on sort of extending the antennas out into luxury street skate footwear, everything, right? And like absorbing all of that into his work. And so you're arguably doing that as well. Um, and I think the thing that that makes this case really interesting is that you're not taking like a trademarked logo and putting it on your product. Like you're not bootlegging it, right? Like you know, you did it in black and white, which is not ownable. You did it with quotation marks, which is not ownable. And you put a red zip tag on it, which you could buy at Uline. Like, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> like nothing about it. Like, you skirted it well. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that it still triggered the red flag. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see yeah. how, how things uh, transpire. And yeah, from there. R- regardless of which way it goes, it'll be interesting that, you know, like this, this not only is a case about like, you know, um, sort of intellectual property, but also what is an ownable thing? You right. know, like, can you own like a feeling? Right. You know what I mean? Right. It's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's not something that's black and white, mm-hmm. you know? So there's like if, be- if, if Off-White wins this, that you could argue that then Supreme could sue everyone that uses a red box. Like they could sue Levi's. Absolutely. Because there's like a feeling there that it's like similar. There's a, absolutely. <laughs> and this is, this, is that, this is that gray area. And yeah. so, you know, I think, yeah, if... if there's there's a lot to be said if it goes like you said, mm-hmm. and you know technically anyone can yeah and can can sue someone else for 
you, know? uh, you you pissed me off. Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> so we'll see, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I, it's not up to me to make that decision. I right. mean, obviously, I have opinions, but that doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. In a court of law. So. <laughs> right. How yeah. do you feel? I mean, from eight years ago to now, like seeing how street culture has exploded, like. Would you have guessed back then of, of how big it has gotten, or do you knew it was going to happen? Well, I think because it's it's I think it I think it it's grown into epic proportions. I think it's also in, it's also in a time where I think it's going to change. Okay, bit, how what's you know? your prediction? My prediction is it's not even a prediction. Is like how I see the the next generation and what they care about. I think um, corporations and businesses are going to be um, highly regarded and where people put their money is going to be really important. Gotcha. So I think with streetwear, I don't know if the brands have really been held to a certain extent accountable, Mm -hmm. you know, to bettering society, to doing certain things that are going to help the next generation. But I think the consumer base and um, what they care about, they want to know what they're doing. And so, yeah. People are going to have to somewhat acclimate to that, mm-hmm. you know. And I think um, it's um, interesting because you would think streetwear brands would be most poised to do that, right? Where like if you're a consumer looking for something to support and put your dollars against, and in terms of a brand that like this is something I really believe in, I believe in their in like in rallying behind them. You would think streetwear brands would be like the most obvious ones, but to your point, a lot of them are just they're close to the culture, they're close to the neighborhoods. Like yeah. it should be that way. Right. You know, but for whatever reason it isn't that. Mm-hmm. It's more about kind of posturing and, and, and puffing the chest out. And that's great <laughs> and that's good. I think that's good. It's built it to this point and it right. makes things exclusive and that's great. But what about the other side of the coin? Yeah. Of giving back to your neighborhood, giving back to the community, doing good for yourself and other people and 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 Really, if we look at education and nowadays, people aren't learning from necessarily going to school. They're learning from podcasts. They're learning from, mm-hmm. you know, uh, thought leaders and things of that nature. Like corporations and brands are going to be the next to educate the next generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a responsibility, and so that's something that we take that we're pioneering and we're trailblazing on our end. Um, you know that that we want to continue to do because. I think that there's a lot of mentorship that a um, a brand can give that kid that loves that sneaker or whatever the case may be. You can teach him something through that process, mm-hmm. you know, and change his life. And yeah. so um, that's where I see things have to go, and that's where we're going to continue to push the envelope and, and be leaders in that. And so um, that's the, that's exciting. Word. Yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you. That was awesome. Thanks. Thanks a lot, man. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode with the super sharp entrepreneur, Daniel Cassidy of Rastaclot. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I personally use Anchor FM. Also, leave a comment and tell us what you think of the show and tell a friend about the show. It definitely helps a lot to spread the word. We occasionally answer some listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Novetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpera and Christina Hong. And this episode was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location at the Staple headquarters in New York City. I am Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio. Hypebeast Radio.